We are in chapter 2 of Ephesians, and we considered last week uh, the personal and individual movement we had as believers from being dead before God in trespasses and sins, and being without a hope in the world, and God made us alive in Christ Jesus and we looked at and we considered how this work of salvation was all God's work you know um, I said before that if salvation was was 95% God's work and 5% our work then we've got something to boast about but it's all God's work it is For by grace we have been saved through faith and not of ourselves, it is a gift from God. And I just love this phrase in this, which was mentioned in the first chapter of Ephesians, to the praise of the glory of his grace. I just love that, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Father, you're worthy to be praised for your goodness for your grace for accepting us into your family Lord I prayed it but we take it for granted we don't recognize exactly what God has done for us as we're going to look at today you know individually but also corporately now after establishing this common individual salvation for all people, the Apostle Paul then begins to address an issue that was very prominent in its day. And this was the issue of racial and national division. Now, perhaps 2,000 years removed this doesn't necessarily mean so much to us as we're looking into these things. But, you know, in a sense, if you lived in Northern Ireland and you had that differences between Catholics and Protestants, it would relate to you. If, you know, you was in, forgive me, I don't, can't give you an exact example, but if you lived in, in one of the you know, African countries and there was tribal warfare and differences was important... It will mean something to you. You know, we have differences between black people and white people. We have differences between black people and black people. West Indians and Jamaicans don't get on. Ghanaians and Nigerians. Oh, they get on, I forgot. Praise the Lord. <laughs> I'm getting a finger being wagged at me to say, not so, not so. 
Okay. Well, in this church, they get on. Yeah. Hallelujah. <laughs> we have differences, postcodes. SE 15 or SE 22. You know, postcodes, divisions. We have divisions in denominations. Well, I'm a Baptist. No, I'm a Pentecostal. I believe in the gifts of the Spirit, yo. Differences. And, you know, we, we, we make these differences. We, we focus on these differences. And we forget the fact that in Christ Jesus, we are one. The world wants to focus on differences. The devil wants to focus on differences. Because that's part of his game plan. But we should not be of that spirit. And as we look at the text which we're going to be presented with today, you know, it's complicated. You know, once you start really handling Paul's epistles, his letters, his, his books, Paul's deep. You know, he, he's... Who plays chess? I mean, no, who really plays chess? Because that is the question. <laughs> like, you could just know how the pieces move. <laughs> But then you're a chess player and you're thinking like 10 moves ahead. It's like, you know, you've seen the play. Uh, Brian, you're like that, isn't it? Well, well, Brian, you're not a chess player then. All right, we'll have to talk, Brian. But do you see my point? Those guys, you know, when they're doing these chess competitions and they've got the clock there and it's like, they're going bing with the clock and it's like bing with the clock and it's like they've moved like 10 moves ahead. You know, and um, I forgot my train of thought there. Paul's deep. He's deep like that. Oh, this is going to be even longer, guys. <laughs> Paul's deep like that. He's moving, he's moving, moves ahead like he's, oh, he's just deep like that. So, and it's exciting. I encourage you guys, you know, don't just read your Bible, study it. Do you know what I mean? Kind of get Paul's train of thought and like roll with him, ride with him. And it's not, it's Paul, but it's the spirit in Paul. You know? It's the, you know, Paul was deep, totally sidetracked here. Paul was deep and you know that Paul, you know, he, he was a Pharisee. He was well educated. And the Lord was able to use that and he writes what? Three quarters of the New Testament. Peter was deep. Two books. You know, James was deep. You know, it's like, you know, I haven't got good brain. If you've got good brain, let the Lord use you. You know, perhaps he's given you good brain because he's prepared that beforehand. You're his poema and he wants to use that so you walk in it. Paul's walking in what God has placed before him. He's deep. Anyway, it's a complicated portion of text. But... The thought block is this, in this section is this, that once we've been placed in Christ through salvation, we then have to recognize that through this process, God makes us one body. Our nationality or our racial heritage should no longer identify us as who we are. 
Now, you don't really see it so much in this country, but you know, when you go to America, you see those guys, they hand the flags outside their house because, you know, they're proud to be American. You know, we're American. You know, and it's like, and it really identifies who they are. Now, I don't necessarily feel that way, being born in Britain. I'm proud of being British, but having a Jamaican heritage. I'm not like, oh, I'm Jamaican, or I'm British. I don't really feel that way. You know, I don't know if anybody here does. But, but if you do, that should not identify you as who you are. You know? We shouldn't have this thing of, I'm Ghanaian, therefore, sorry to use that Ghanaian as an example, but I'm Ghanaian, therefore I go to a Ghanaian church. Because it, it, it identifies me as who I am. Or I go to a Nigerian church. That, it, you know what that is doing? We're going to look at it. What that is doing, that is building up the things which, which Christ came to tear down. Our identity should be in Christ. And this is the doctrinal theme that Paul begins to address in this section. Now, in the ancient world, it was basically divided into two racial groups. Jews, Gentiles. The Jews, as we are aware, we should be aware, were a distinct group of people and they adhered to the law of Moses. Whereas the Gentiles was basically everyone else. It's like you're going to play a game of football or basketball or something and all the good guys over, the say, over one side, you say, you can have everyone else. I was always in the good team still. <laughs> But again, I digress. <laughs> so, the Jew, Jews or Gentiles, and the actual name Gentile was given by the Jews to character, characterize all those that had not received the law of Moses or did not live by the law of Moses. Now, you could... Um, become what was called a proselyte. You could adopt the Jewish faith uh, um, and Judaism. You could become a proselyte and then you would be accepted. But basically, you had Jews and Gentiles. And over the centuries, this racial distinction between Jew and Gentile became so entrenched that both groups despised each other and held each other in contempt. Many wars and conflicts were fought over racial, social, and religious differences. And both groups were just as bad as each other. You know, when, when we hear about, you know, things going on perhaps in Northern Ireland with the Catholics and the Protestants, can you say anyone is better than the other? They're killing each other. You know... All of you are aware, because I probably mention it every time I, I, I teach, but, you know, I'm interested in football. And you hear about things happening in, in Scotland in, partic in particular against Rangers and Celtic, because um, Rangers are, are the Protestant team and Celtic are the Catholic team. And when there's big fights and everything, they're saying, yeah, it's religious, it's religious wars going on. It's, you know, it's all to do with religion. And I'm like, that's not to do with religion. Those guys can't turn around and tell me they love Jesus. 
That they fight on a Saturday and they go to church on a Sunday, praising the Lord. No. It's twisted. They're using religion as a cloak, as a vice. But here, in the ancient world, many, many wars, contempt. And, you know, from the Jews' part, we could say, well, you know what, you should know better. You should have known better because you were given the oracles of God. And from the outset, God wanted the Jews to be a nation of priests. Read it in Exodus 20. Or Exodus. He wanted them to be a nation of priests, but they flopped. He wanted the Jews to be a light to the Gentiles. That was their purpose. But again, they flopped. And what the Jews actually did was they just focused on the benefits of being God's people. They just focused on, well, you know what, we're all right. We've got a relationship with God. And... You know, we can be guilty of that today also, that, you know, we just think, well, we're Christians. We don't need to go out and evangelize. We don't need to go out and share the gospel with anyone because we're saved, isn't it? We're all right. We come to church every week. We sing two songs and it's all good. It's all gravy. And we could be guilty of the same things of what the Jews were guilty of, as we see in the Old Testament. And so the Jews, you know, what they would do is they would observe the feast days and the ceremonies. You know, for the most part, they didn't intermingle with other racial groups. Their clothes were different. Their food was different. And from generation to generations, you know, the Jews just didn't quite get it. And so instead of fulfilling the purposes of God as being a light to the Gentiles, what they actually did was, is they they built up a wall of separation. Now, before we go into our text, you know, what you have to do now is you have to use your imagination. I could have put a picture up on the screen, but I want you to engage with your mind. You know, you don't have to actually picture something elaborate. It could just be a building on a hill, with surroundings, yeah? But what I want you to imagine is the temple in Jerusalem. If you can think of it, you've got a picture in the back of your Bible, Herod's temple in Jerusalem. And Herod's temple in Jerusalem was built upon an elevated platform. And around this temple was a series of courts, The first court was called the court of the priests. East of this court was called the court of Israel. And then further east was the court of the women. So we had a series of three courts. And they were all on the same level as the temple. Now, from this level, you descended down five steps to a walled platform. And then on the other side of the walled platform, you descended down another 14 steps to another wall. And beyond this wall, you had what was called the court of the Gentiles, also known as 
the outer court. And the outer court was huge, it was spacious, and it ran all around the inner courts and the temple. And from any part of the outer court, you could look up and see the temple. You still get this picture, yeah? Right. And you could only see it from a distance. Because Gentiles, you and me, because I don't think there's any Jewish people in here. So Gentiles, all of us in this room, yeah, were not allowed to approach the temple. We were cut off. Cut off by the walls, cut off by the steps, and cut off by warning signs at regular intervals written in Greek and Latin. So you didn't miss it, which didn't just say trespasses, trespasses will be prosecuted. It said trespasses will be executed. And basically, it had something which said, you know what? You come here at your own risk. You want to step over, you're going to get executed. And it is to this picture of a wall of separation and, and division that Paul addresses these Ephesian believers who were made up of both Jew and Gentile. So, our text, reading from verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, therefore putting to death the enmity, and he came and preached peace to you, Gentiles, who were afar off, and to those who were near, Jews. For through him we both, Gentile and Jew, have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, Jews, and members of the household of God. Having been built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Wow. 
beautiful. Now you read that, you get tongue-tied, you get messed up. Let's try and break it down. If you can remember, so far, Paul, as I said, he's very clever. He's thinking steps ahead. He's alluded to this separation, this distinction. You know, in, in the early verses, you know, he referred to the Jews as saints and, and the Gentiles as the faithful in Christ Jesus. He uses words like you, we, us, because he's bringing distinctions here. But it isn't, this, uh, he's not, he, he didn't lay a foundation of distinctions so he can dwell on the extinctions because he wants to make a point. He wants to highlight these distinctions to say, do you know what? We use these words, but it means nothing. And so he uses these things so that he could tackle the issue of division and oneness head on. And so initially he has the Gentile believers as a group in focus. He says, therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. As, as Gentiles, as a group, we were totally out of relationship with God. And physically, men, we did not bear the mark of God on our bodies. And circumcision was something which the Jews were very, very proud of. As if it was, you know, it, it was this physical sign that set them apart as being God's people. And so Paul, he, he uses this first because he looked at the derogatory way in which they addressed each other. The way in which they used the, this word is like an ethnic slur. Because if you really think about it, to call someone circumcised or uncircumcised, I mean, you're, you're, you're talking about their private areas, aren't you? It's derogatory. It's like saying, ah, oh, yeah, well, I've got foreskin, or I don't have foreskin. It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But that is the way they address to each other. And Paul wants to use this, this, this way they, they, they use it as a, as a cuss, in a sense, because he wants to highlight that, you know what, there is something that is far deeper and far more important than this physical sign of circumcision, which is the circumcision of the heart. He says in Romans chapter 2 and verse, verse 28 and 29, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Circumcision, as far as God was concerned, 
it really didn't mean anything because it was pointing to something deeper. First the natural, then the spiritual. And so in verse 12, after making this statement, just saying, look, at the end of the day, your circumcision, a man did it. It wasn't like God did it, a man did it. I'm looking at something which God does in the heart. And so in verse 12, what Paul actually does is now, again, the Gentiles are in focus. He begins to list the disadvantages that we as Gentiles faced. And he describes them, you know, like a fivefold descent. And he says that at that time, speaking of the complete time period before the Lord Jesus' death and resurrection, he says, you, Gentiles, you were without God. Before Christ's earthly ministry, Gentiles were not just without Christ, we were without any hope. We weren't even looking for a Messiah. It was a sad situation. And he goes on to say, being aliens from the commonwealth of God. You know, Israel, on the other hand, we weren't even looking for God. But Israel, you know, they were a nation under God. A theocracy. A covenant people to whom God had pledged himself to with an oath. You know, God had bound himself to Israel and he ruled over Israel. But the Gentiles, all the Gentile nations were excluded from this covenant. Excluded even though God's intention from the beginning was to include every tribe, every tongue, every nation into his promises. But again, as I said, the, Gentile, the Gentiles were unaware. They, were, they didn't know about these promises. They didn't know that they, they could look for a Messiah. Messiah, what are you talking about? Who's a Messiah? What's that all about? He goes on to say, we were strangers from the covenants of promise. Strangers. It's like, you know, as you walk down the road and you just pass people and you, you don't acknowledge them because they're a stranger. You don't know them. And that's how our relationship with God was like. It's like we could walk down the street and pass God and not recognize it was God. Strangers from the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God, uppercase G, in the world. So Paul is listing, you know, look, we were in a bad way. We were without Christ. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers from the covenants of promise. We had no hope and we were without God. Very bleak. But in verse 13, 
Paul begins to bring optimism. And, you know, chapter 2 is basically divided into two halves. And in the first half of this chapter, verses 1 to 3, you know, we have a negative description of, you know, as individuals, life without Christ and being dead and in trespasses. In this second half, verses 11 to 12, we again have this negative description of being alienated from God. We were strangers and foreigners before him. But in the first half, from verse 4, we see Paul began to bring that optimism. You know, we, the words of, but God. And it's beautiful. And now, in verse 13, we have the similar optimism with the words, but now. But now. We once were, but now. In Christ Jesus, you, us Gentiles, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We were far off. What, what does far off mean? Well, this concept of being far off was popularized by the connection it had, again, to the location of the temple in Jerusalem. Because when the temple was built, the Jews, by virtue of their geographical proximity to the temple and their covenant relationship with God, they were referred to as the near to God. They were near to the temple, near the house of God, and near to the place of worship. The Gentiles, on the other hand, remember that picture I tried to get you to remember? The temple and the courts and descending. <laughs> we were afar off. We were beyond the borders of Israel. And so we were called the far off. To the point that if a Jew was traveling from north to south and they had to go through Samaria, they wouldn't go through Samaria. They'll go around. Because if, they, if, they, if their feet touched the soil of Samaria, they felt that they were being contaminated. And so, instead of getting the short way, they'll go the long way. Now, I digress again. Now, you can see when Jesus said, I must needs go through Samaria. He was, he was breaking down walls. He was breaking down divisions. Breaking down those walls of separation. The Jews were afar off, far from relationship with God, far from his benefits and promises. And so Paul uses this negative concept, which, again, the first-hand readers, the Ephesians, they would have been familiar with this. They would have known these things. Not like us now, we've got to study it, because we haven't got a clue. They would have been familiar with it, and, and he uses this to drive his point that in the past, the Gentiles had no hope. But now. But now. And it's only because of the precious 
blood of Jesus and his sacrificial offering on the cross that Gentiles now have access to God and the ability to be brought near, to be considered the near. Without Christ's sacrifice, no nearness. Without Christ's sacrifice, you know, we had one destination, people. And which one of us could have said, God, it's unfair. It's not right. Why should I be going there? Well, he's sovereign. He makes the rules. And so... Paul brings this concept that, you know, you once were far off, you know, picture the temple, that physical temple, there's a, there's a greater temple, it's a spiritual temple, you know, there may be those steps and those walls and those courtyards preventing you from going in that physical temple, but you know what, spiritually, there's a spiritual temple which God says you can be brought near. Now, it rocks me. Because that changes my concept of Christianity. It changes my, my thoughts and my relationship with God. It, it, it moves me to think, God, you're deep. I can't just casually hear that and not have a response. Do you know what I mean? It's not like, oh yeah, that's a good bit of information. Now let, let me get on with my day. It moves me, but I don't know if it moves you. And so Paul goes on and he says in verse 14, you know, through the precious blood of Jesus and the sacrificial offering on the cross, you know, now, you know, it says, for he himself is our peace. Peace with God. Individually, but now it's bigger than that. Because it's a corporate thing. It's beyond being a national thing or a racial thing. We have peace with God. And when it says, for he himself is our peace, you know, we see that peace is, is not necessarily described as a thing or something we do, something we received. It says he himself is our peace. It's identified, peace is identified as a person. So, you know, in planet Earth, without Christ, can we really have peace? Because he is peace. He's the prince of peace. Jesus Christ, you know, he came to bring peace between God and man, but also between, it's going to sound funny, man and man. It's the cross. You know, so we wouldn't have divisions amongst ourselves. We would have right relationship to God and right relationship with each other. And he says, who has made both one. 
And Paul's going to start talking a lot about this oneness as we go through the rest of this epistle. Oneness and being a body. And has broken down the middle wall of separation. You know, those walls broken down. Christ has made all people, people groups one in him. And, you know, when we think about this, it's only God who could have pulled off such a thing. Only God could bring these two opposing groups and bring them together. Two groups who held each other in utter contempt. He could bring them together. It's only the Lord's finished work on the cross which literally tore down all forms of division. So that in his kingdom, there is no racial division, social division, class division, religious division, gender re- division. You know, these are all things which Paul is describing as those middle walls of separation. And again, it brings us back to that idea, if you can think about it, of the picture of the temple, the courtyards, the steps, the walls, the warnings. He's broken those, all those things down. And he's broken them down to the point that now we can come boldly before the throne of grace. Boldly. You know, in the Old Testament, they did not have this concept of calling God Father. Of having that close relationship with God. God was almighty. He was the creator. All-powerful. Revered so much they wouldn't even write his name properly. And when they were writing, when they were making new copies of the scriptures, every time they came to his name, there was a ceremonial washing of hands because they revered it so much. And now, through the cross, (laughs) we as Gentiles, who were afar off, now we can somehow just come boldly before the throne room of grace. That is a privilege, people. That is something which humbles me. The creator of all things, the almighty God says, you know what? You've got open access. Come when you please. And when you come, you don't have to just come, oh, 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 Father, um, is it possible that um, I can commit this prayer into your hands? He says, I can come boldly. Big up my chest. 36 inches. <laughs> well, you know. You get my point? I will take that no further. Boldly before the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. It's beautiful. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. The Lord Jesus' complete work on the cross, you know, it totally abolished and made void the law of commandments contained in ordinances. These 
ordinances, you know, physically again distinguished the Jews from the Gentiles. And so what, what does that mean? What it is basically saying is that the whole Jewish ceremonial law was done away with. Now some people may be offended by that. But that's what the text says. The daily sacrifices, the rituals, the feast days, the dietary laws and so on. As far as God was concerned, they were done away with. He abolished them in his flesh. You know, when Jesus was on the cross and he said, it is finished, at that point, Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament types and shadows that these ordinances were pointing to. They were fulfilled in him. And so we have the idea of, you know, when, when Peter's got the vision on the, on the rooftop and he sees all these different, you know, beasts coming down and he hears the voice saying, Peter, kill and eat and kill or kill and eat. Kill and eat. And he says, no, no, because I've never, I've never eaten anything, you know, unclean or defiled. He goes, you know, what well, I've cleansed, you know, what's the rest of it? There you go. Because it was done away with. At that point, you know, when Paul was writing this, the temple was still up and running. But not long after that, the Romans came and they destroyed the temple. The sacrificial offerings were done away with. And so physically finished. But even though Jesus fulfilled these things and he abolished the ceremonial law, he did not abolish the moral law found in the Ten Commandments, the moral law which is written in our hearts. You know, this law still stands today. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 22, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind because this is the first and great commandment and the second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets love God love your neighbor love God love your neighbor So he abolished the ceremonial law so that there is no longer any visible religious, racial and national divisions before him. And so you say to yourself, well, okay, that's all well and good and everything. Why did he do it? So as to create in himself one new man from the two. See, Paul made these distinctions, Jews, Gentiles, but now he's saying, look, why did he do all this? Because from the two, I want to make one. I want to create one. So Christ created in himself, the Greek word is kainos, 
which actually means create something new which has never been seen before. Which is this new man or this new body within the spirit. The church. You, me, made up of both Jew and Gentile. And within this new man, positionally, before God, we're one. Positionally, before God, we are unified. Positionally, before God, we have his peace. Galatians 3.28 says, you know, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And he did this to create this new man, thus making, and here we have a second reference to peace. And you know, again, law of repetition in the scriptures is quite interesting. You know, when, when, when a word's used over and over, it's like the, the author or the spirit of God is trying to prove a point. Make a point. Peace. Thus making peace. Christ Jesus made peace. He is our peace and he desires that we live in peace. He's removed all obstacles and barriers of discrimination and segregation, anti-Semitism, bigotry that will prevent this. Verse 16, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby, thereby putting to death the enmity. In his goodness and grace, God has provided the cross as a righteous basis to completely remove sin, completely remove division, completely remo remove hatred and ill will, and to completely offer this thing called reconciliation. Reconciliation back to God so that we can enjoy peace. In verse 14, it says Christ is our peace. In verse 15, it says he made peace. And now in verse 17, it says, and he came to preach peace. And he came and preached peace to you Gentiles who were afar off and to those who were near. The message of the gospel, you know, it's a message of peace for all nations. You know, in the, in, in the gospels it says, peace and goodwill will to all men. And it's interesting that after the Lord's resurrection, he's first, you know, one of the first words he spoke to his disciples were, peace be with you. And so the way the text is structured, you know, it gives the impression that Christ preaching peace to the disciples, the disciples ministering peace to other disciples, and then through the centuries, we have received that message of peace. This is the term which is being made, and he came and preached peace to you, in a sense. Because 
It's not our message, it's still his message. If that makes sense. It's not a message of my peace. It's a message of God's peace to all men. A message of peace which has gone out to all of those who are far off and those who are near. You know, even in Isaiah it says, Peace, peace to him that is far off and to him that is near. See, even the Old Testament prophets, they kind of had an idea of what God wanted to do, but they didn't have the full revelation. And so we can see how Paul is trying to wrestle with these Ephesians to say, break down those barriers of division. Recognize that you're one in Christ. You know, the message of Christ goes out to you who were afar off and to you who are near. And in verse 18, it's beautiful because it gives us a picture of the work of the Trinity and the oneness of the Trinity. Because it says, for through him, Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit to the Father. The word Trinity isn't in the scriptures, but it's very obvious there. Through Christ and by the Holy Spirit, we, have, we all have, again, without partiality, we have this unlimited access to the Father. And again, this word access is, is an interesting word because... The act of reconciliation, if we could look at it this way, you know, it happened at an event, a fixed event in history when Christ went on the cross. But when it says we both have access, you know, access is this, this idea of this ongoing relationship. This ongoing opportunity to come before God. We've got access. We can come, we can go. We can come, we can go. And again, Paul's just highlighting that we have this brilliant transformation from where we were as individuals, dead in sins and trespasses, to where we were as as groups of, of, of nations, separated and far off from God to now being brought near, now, now having this unlimited access before the throne of God. And then what he does, the Apostle Paul, in the last four verses, um, he basically begins to summarize. He begins to summarize and he begins to kind of like reverse in a sense the list of disadvantages that he listed in verse 12 he says now therefore you gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners from from being totally far removed from the kingdom of god we now have a kingdom we now have a kingdom where the true god rules over his subjects From being aliens, we are now fellow citizens with the saints. 
Therefore, Jew and Gentiles now has the same privileges before God. And being citizens of, of his kingdom, it doesn't just stop there because, you know, being a citizen is one thing, but to then be adopted into his family, as it goes on to say, we are members of the household of God. You know, that, that is really being brought close and being brought near. You know, the majority of us, I would say, are citizens of the United Kingdom. But then, so that, that really means anything. It's very broad, isn't it? But now, to be members of a household, that's personal. That's intimate. And that's exactly what God has done. He has brought us close, adopted us, members of his family. And verse 20 says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, theologians differ over exactly what this means. But I believe that this verse gives the impression that this newfound position that we find ourselves in you know, in God's new society, you know, it has been based and established on a new economy. You can disagree with me if you like. But I believe it suggests that this new man is built upon the solid foundation and the teaching and instruction of New Testament apostles and prophets. Individuals who Jesus specifically chose and called, who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection, and individuals who he authorized to teach and instruct in his name, which we know consisted of the 12 of Paul, who we're read, reading about now, James and Luke, maybe a few others. And this obviously doesn't mean that the Old Testament, we could just say, oh, forget about the Old Testament now. It doesn't mean that. But the Old Testament prophets, they were limited in, in the revelation they had of Christ. You know, when the Old Testament prophets, you know, looked into the future, they, they saw two mountain peaks, you know, they, um, they considered that there would be two Christs, um, Messiah ben Joseph and Messiah ben David, the suffering, the suffering Messiah and the, the glorious reigning Messiah. They didn't realize that it was one Messiah, two comings. They saw two mountain peaks, Messiah ben Joseph, one Messiah ben David. They didn't see, so it was like, no, they couldn't see the valley in the middle. We are the valley. The church. The church age. They didn't see it. And so now, the Apostle Paul, for example, he takes what the Old Testament prophets were speaking about and he says, this is what they were speaking about. I'm going to give you the spiritual angle to it now. I'm going to bring the revelation to it now. 
And it's for you and it's for me, the church age. And so that is why I believe he's saying, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, it kind of like alludes to that. Because it says about, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Search in what or in what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the suffering, sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. You know, they had the Spirit within them, but they just couldn't really get it. Like, how is it going to work? The sufferings of Christ and the glory, like, how does it all work? They didn't get it. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Spirit sent from heaven, things which the angels desire to look into. Deep things. The prophets of old, they didn't, they didn't quite get it. Because it was a mystery, a mystery not never to be revealed, a mystery waiting for the appointed time, the right time to be revealed. So the church is built upon a New Testament doctrine with Jesus Christ having the preeminent position as being the chief cornerstone. And I'm not an architect, I'm not a builder, but I understand that the chief cornerstone of any edifice is an essential foundation block that makes the whole building hold together. The chief cornerstone also binds two walls together. Apparently so. It binds two walls together to make it one unit. It binds Jew and Gentile together. One unit. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. He has the preeminent position. In whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Beautiful. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're being built up. We're growing together. I mean, from, from that position of, oh, the temple's up there and if I cross... If I cross that wall and I walk up them steps, whoa, I'm going to get executed. Now I'm part of the temple. Paul wants them to get this picture. He wants us to get this picture that believers, that we're part of this, of this living organism. It's growing You know, we have this unlimited access to the Father. He has made us part of his body. You know, we're growing up together in him. And it's beautiful because, again, as he ended the last section, you know, we are his, we are his poema, you know, created for good works, which God 
you know, prepared beforehand. You know, he's created these things and now he's saying, look, you're integral here. You're part of this temple. Those things you need to be working out and walking in, they're important because you're part of this spiritual temple. It's deep. And I'm going to close with this. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, it says, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. You know, it's just amazing how Paul can just present these things, present these truths, and then he encourages us and empowers us to walk in them. You know, from looking at something from an individual pers- perspective, tonight there's a, there's a corporate responsibility. You know, we are all obviously individuals, but as a church, we have a responsibility. As a church, we have a responsibility to be a voice, to be active within our communities. We all have responsibility. We are all God's poema, and he wants us to walk in what he has prepared for us beforehand. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for the richness of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you know, in you, 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 you break down divisions. And Lord, um, forgive us if we have tried to erect... <laughs> those walls of separation again, Lord. Forgive us of those things. Forgive us, Lord, if we, you know, look for our identity in our differences, Lord, because we should be looking for our identity in our oneness with you. Lord Jesus, challenge us to be more like you. Challenge us, Lord, to, if we see these things happening within our own fellowship, Lord, to to, to recognize them and to fight against those things, Lord, so that we wouldn't be considered, you know, even here at South London, a black church or a West Indian church or a Ghanaian or Nigerian church, whatever it may be, Lord. We are your church. You are the head. You have the position of preeminence. You are the chief cornerstone, Lord, and our desire, Lord, is to be pleasing before you and to be one before you, Lord. And so we thank you for your word today. We pray, Lord, that it will continue to speak to our hearts throughout the week. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that um, we would allow you, Lord, to stretch us, to mold us, as you, mold us as you see fit. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I